0: You are listening to the Sermons Podcast of First Baptist Church, Mount Washington. First Thessalonians chapter 5 today, we're gonna, uh, I'm going to give you just a little bit of background on First Thessalonians so that we can kind of get the context of what we're looking at in the scriptures today. Uh, this is one of Paul's earliest letters, and he writes this letter to the church there at Thessalonica, a church that was very embattled with persecution. As we think about our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan today, that's the kind of context that we're looking at here in 1 Thessalonians. Paul actually planted that church in Acts 17 and was forced to leave Thessalonica because of the persecution, because of the intense battle against the gospel. Paul had to leave there under cover of night and go on to the next city. He only spent just a short time there, perhaps even just a few weeks there in planting that church. And he was concerned that the persecution would cause the disillusion of that church, that they, that they would perhaps turn away from their faithfulness to Christ because of what was happening to them. So as we, as we pray for our brothers and sisters in, in Afghanistan today... We understand that they are not alone. The last 2,000 years, the church has faced persecution because of the person of Jesus Christ. Because of this gospel that we have sung this morning, because of this gospel that we have prayed this morning, because of this gospel that by the grace of God I hope to preach this morning, we face persecution And so as we get into 1 Thessalonians, Paul is seeking to encourage this embattled church and his primary source of encouragement for them is the second coming of Christ. If you're interested in the second coming, 1 and 2 Thessalonians are two wonderful books to spend some time with. And in 1 Thessalonians, Paul accentuates the end of every chapter with the second coming. It's as if at the end of each of these five chapters, Paul puts an exclamation point, which is the fact that our King Jesus is coming again for his people. Now for Christians like many of us who have not faced open and rampant persecution, that doesn't have quite as much meaning as it does for those who are dwelling in places where their lives are at stake because of Christ. But for those who are facing persecution, the coming of our King takes on a meaning that goes beyond what the rest of us can quite understand. And so Paul accentuates each of these chapters, he ends each of these chapters with the exclamation point of the coming of King Jesus. Our King is coming. We need not be discouraged. We need not be afraid. We need not live in anxiety because this is not all that there is. So I want to share with you just a brief illustration this morning after we read the Scriptures that I hope will set up our time together in God's Word. But let's read the Word first. We're going to be in 1 Thessalonians 5, beginning in verse 12. And if you would stand with me in honor of God's Word this morning as we share these Scriptures together. 1 Thessalonians 5, beginning in verse 12. The Apostle Paul writes, We ask you, brothers... Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Let's pray together. Father, as we have opened your word together today, Remind us that this is a holy moment because we serve a holy God who has given us this holy word for our instruction, for our encouragement, and where it is needed for our rebuke. So we pray, Father, that you would help us to heed your word today, give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to the church today. And may we not just be hearers of your word, but may we become doers of it, living in obedience to your word, because we love you. Let we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated this morning. I'm going to give you just a short illustration to guide us through our time in these scriptures today, and it comes from... Uh, The scene that happened on July the 2nd of this year, a scene that many of you may be familiar with if you've done uh, much traveling, Uh, but we had a a team from our church that had gone to Puerto Rico on a mission trip. They had been serving there with the North American Mission Board and and had been serving those who were still living under some of the devastation from the hurricane that happened in Puerto Rico two years ago. They were uh, rebuilding some homes and working on some roofs and, and some various projects And as they were preparing to return home, they arrived at the airport that morning, and it was about uh, 9.30 or so that morning when they got there. Their flight was meant to leave at at 1.30, so they had plenty of time. And they're just doing the things that you normally do in the airport, grabbing something to eat, getting all their things checked in, and then just waiting. And so this first picture that I wanted to show you is is the team there as they're waiting. The flight was meant to leave at 1.30. And about 5 till 1, they got word that their flight had been canceled. Now, I've been, done a good bit of traveling, but I've never actually had that experience. But my wife and my oldest daughter were on this trip, and immediately my wife texted me and said, we've got a problem, kind of like the old Apollo 13 movie, Houston we have a problem. The flight has been canceled, what are we gonna do? And, and I knew that the weather was predicting that a, a tropical storm was set to hit Puerto Rico within about six or eight hours of their flight leaving. Their flight has been canceled, the storm is coming, what are we gonna do? And the team begins to get anxious. And so they're sitting there in the airport not knowing when they'll be able to leave, just waiting for word. There's nothing they can do but wait. But I want you to consider what we do while we're waiting. For a worship pastor and his wife, they caught up on some sleep. There's a great picture that I shared with our church of, uh, of them uh, camping out there and sleeping with their, their masks on and just leaned over uh, and head to head with one another. For my daughter Eliza and her friend Kenzie, they're teenagers, they weren't quite as worn out from the week, and so they played cards. There's a wonderful picture of them playing cards with one another and enjoying time, just uh, sharing some games together. Uh, For my buddy Jackson Osborne, my son's good friend, uh, he found a dog to play with in the airport. It was some kind of a service animal, uh, but the owner let him uh, pet and play with, with this dog. But they all found things to occupy their time. It was a time of unexpected waiting. They didn't know when they would be able to leave. And by God's grace, they were that evening about 9.30. They caught a flight that ended up in Fort Lauderdale, then eventually in Nashville. And my wife that was due home about midnight that night got home about 6.30 the next morning. I was still asleep when she arrived. But I want you to consider, what do we do while we're waiting? How do we occupy our time? Because the reality is, church, we are living in an airport terminal. The reality is this is not our home. The reality is that we are sojourners and strangers in a foreign land. We are living on a mission trip, and we are waiting not for an airplane to take us home. We are waiting for our King to come and to take us home to be with Him forever. But what do we do while we're waiting? These verses answer that very question. We are to be a people who are quite busy with the things of the Lord while we are waiting for our King to come and to take us home. And so I want to share with you this morning, and and there's an outline there in your bulletin if you want to follow along. I want to share with you four things that we do while we're waiting for Christ to return. Now you're going to see here 16 rapid-fire commands. As Paul comes to the end of this letter, he wants to leave them with a to-do list, if you will, things that they're to be doing while they're waiting for Christ to return. And now here, 2,000 years later, this same list still applies to us. This is still still good instruction for us as the people of God as to what we should be doing while we're waiting in the terminal, while we're in the waiting room, if you will, waiting for King Jesus to come and to take us home. The first thing we see there in verses 12 and 13 is that while we're waiting for our King to come, that we are to respect our pastor's. He says there in verse 12, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Now, I know he doesn't use the term pastor, elder, overseer there, but that's obviously who Paul is referring to here in this context. He's talking about those leaders in the church that God had placed there, gifts of the Lord to his church that they were called upon as God's people to show great respect for. Now, I know as we consider that this morning, it may seem a a little self-serving for a pastor to stand before you and call you to respect your pastors. And I would not do this if it were not plainly in the text this morning, that the Word of God is saying to us that God has given this gift of pastors that we are to honor as gifts from God. That we are to show respect to them. The question may be for us then, well, why then should we respect those who have been called to serve in pastoral ministry? Why the command to show respect for the office of the pastor and these brothers who serve in this way? Well, let me give you three reasons from the text this morning that we see right before us. First of all, Paul says, respect them for their labor in the Lord, in other words, respect them for their work. And primarily, what I think he's talking about here is respect them for their work in the word of God, that we show respect to our pastors because of their labor in God's word, of their work in God's word. 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul writes, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor, it's the same word there, who labor in preaching and teaching. Now that word labor it describes a, a labor, a, a hard and difficult work, the, the picture of pouring out blood, sweat, and tears. Now, I know so often in our culture today, when folks think about the labor of a pastor, they think, well, that guy only works on Sunday that's all we ever see. So we, we don't know what he does the rest of the week. I guess he plays golf or or tiddlywinks. I, I don't know exactly what that guy does the rest of the week but all we ever see is, is what he does on Sunday. But the, there is a, a secret labor. There is a labor in the study. There is a pouring over the word of God and allowing the word of God to pour over you and into you. There is a preparation that must take place in order for the pastor to stand before God's people and preach God's word for the word says to study to show ourselves approved that we may be a workman who carefully handles the word of truth so we respect our pastors because of their work in the word we also respect them because of their willingness to lead And so he says to esteem them very highly in love because of their work and to to be at peace among yourselves. And he describes them there in verse 12 as those who are over you in the Lord. Now, the interesting role of the pastor is that he is both over God's people and he is beside God's people. It's an interesting place of leadership to be both over God's people and beside God's people. The shepherd must do his work among the sheep. That's why in 1 Peter 5, Peter encourages the elders to, to pastor the flock of God that is among you. He doesn't say under you. He says among you. The shepherd must do his work among the people of God. But we, we know the truth of leadership, don't we? Leadership has its difficulties. If you stick your head above the crowd, it's liable to get chopped off. If you step out in front to lead, there's a possibility there will be stones thrown from the rear. And so Paul encourages the church, respect these leaders for their willingness to lead. 1 Timothy chapter 3, he reminds them, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, now I understand overseer, elder, pastor, that those all three are synonyms in the New Testament for that same office. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. But church, let's be reminded that just because it's a noble task doesn't mean it's an easy task. In fact, part of the nobility of the pastoral responsibility is that it is a very difficult task. That's why that there is the calling of a pastor. That's why there is oftentimes with so many men called in to this role, as it was true in my own life, there is a long period of struggle against that very call before the Holy Spirit brings us to a place of surrender. We respect our pastors for their work in the Word, for their willingness to lead. We also respect them for their warnings from the Lord. Now, we don't always like this part, but he uses a word here. They're over you in the Lord, and they admonish you. And that's a, not a word we use very often in, in modern-day language, but the idea, again, is, is a warning. And the Greek word here, it refers to a warning, not a harsh warning, not a warning that will beat you down, but, but ultimately a warning that will lift you up. This is a warning that, as a good pastor friend of mine would say, is, is both tough and tender. So there's a there's a real gentleness in the warning and yet there's also a firmness in the warning and that's what he's saying here. They, they admonish you. And I, I remember a number of years ago, I had uh, one of our church members come to me, and they, they were a little upset with me uh, from a series of, of sermons that I had been preaching at the time. And, and, and their issue was they came and they said, Pastor, I, I'm just really struggling with your sermons because I feel like all you're doing these days is bringing these warnings to us. I feel like all we're hearing is just these, these harsh warnings, and I want to walk away from church being encouraged, being lifted up, being built up. I, I've got a lot of hard things going on in my life right now, and I want to come to church and, and not walk away feeling like I had my, my toes stepped on, but feeling like I was, I was elevated. And I really took that to heart. Because I thought, perhaps I've gotten out of balance here. You know, the role of the preacher, both to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. Perhaps I've gotten out of balance here and I'm doing a little more afflicting than I am than I am comforting. And I had to go before the Lord and, and ask him, Father, would you just show me, am I out of balance here? And I do think that there were some places where I was out of balance. But one of the things that I came away from that experience with is the reminder that, Part of the role of the pastor is to warn God's people. To warn God's people that we have an enemy that seeks to devour us and to destroy us. To warn God's people that there are spiritual cliffs off which we can fall. And even in these letters to the church at Thessalonica, Paul gives various warnings. In chapter 4, he warns them of the dangers of sexual immorality. A huge danger in the church Today, the danger of sexual immorality from which Paul tells the church at Corinth to flee from sexual immorality, not to mess around in that area. In Second in Thessalonians, Paul spends much of his time warning them about false teachers, Those who would preach a false doctrine that would lead God's people astray. And again, today, it's such a danger. There's so many dangers in false teaching in the church today. I'm not talking about outside the church. There's plenty outside the church, but in the church today, there's plenty to be concerned about. We'll come back to the idea of false teaching before we finish this morning. But warnings are necessary. Admonishment is used to keep us within the will of God. 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul says to his young protege Timothy, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. And church, if you didn't realize it, I need to say to you this morning, this word is very much out of season in our current cultural context. You may not realize that, but you need to realize that today. We are in an out-of-season kind of time, but that doesn't mean that we shrink back from preaching the Word. No, we press forward in proclaiming the excellencies of Him who called us out of the darkness of our sin and into His glorious light. We press on in these moments when the Word of God is being despised. And even in some churches where the Word of God is seeking to be rewritten in our day, we run back to the faithful Word of God because this is all we got, folks. As I stand before you this morning, I have nothing else worth proclaiming but the Word of Almighty God and His Gospel. And so while we're waiting, we respect our pastors. Number two, and I'm going to have to move a little bit quicker this morning. Number two, we rehearse our patience. The issue of patience is found many places in Paul's letters. It is the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. He encourages Timothy in various ways to observe this matter of patience. And literally, I love the old King James Version that says, long-suffering. That's a great descriptor of what patience really is. It's really being willing to suffer long. But here in this context, as he says, be patient with all, there in verse 15, he's really talking about three different groups. There are three different groups that he is describing here in verses 14 and 15 with whom we need to exercise patience or or long-suffering. First of all, we need to rehearse our patience by warning the wayward. There, look at verse 14. He says, we urge you, brothers, to admonish the idol. There's that warning word again. And there it says idol, but if you look at your footnote down at the bottom of the page, you're probably going to see a footnote that says that this word could also be translated disorderly or undisciplined. And so when we hear the word idol, we automatically think lazy, and there was an issue of that in the church at Thessalonica, but I think it's a broader issue. It was because of their idleness that they were operating in, in disorderly ways. The, the Greek word there is actually a military term that means out of step with the rest of the troops. They're not in. They're not in their, operating within their rank. They're not marching to the same drum. They are out of step. They are disorderly, and it's causing issues among body. And so Paul says to warn them. Similar thing happening in Titus chapter 3 verse 10 where he says for a person who stirs up division, again that picture of disorderliness among the body, as for that person after warning him once and then twice have nothing more to do with him. But you know how we do in the church today. You've got someone who majors in gossip grumbling, any number of things that are causing division and issues in the body. And our response is often this, and this may not happen here at First Baptist Church, but at, at Corinth Baptist Church, our response is often, well, that's just how they are. Well, you know, that's just, that's just how they are. That's just the way they do things. That's just their personality. They, they, it's, we, they can't help, but that's just how they are. And yet, are we then in those moments making an excuse for the kind of behavior that not only brings destruction in the life of the church body, but also brings great destruction in the life of the very individual that is engaged in such behavior? There is a cliff here. We are meant to warn one another that there is danger ahead and to love one another enough to bring that kind of a warning. And again, Paul does not give this instruction just to pastors, just to church leaders, but to the church at large. We are to warn one another when we're seeing a brother or sister operating in divisive ways to warn them, to direct them back to the right path. We not only rehearse our patience by warning the wayward, but we also rehearse our patience by wooing the weary. And so he says there that to encourage the faint hearted, to encourage the faint hearted. By this, I, I understand you'd be talking about those who are just beaten down at that place in their lives. The struggles have been so intense. Now, I know for all of us, the last 18 months have been a struggle in various ways. My own home just two weeks ago, we were all five diagnosed with COVID. My wife has had the worst of it. And, and we just came out middle of last week out of, out of quarantine. And, and it, it, there have been so many struggles over the last year and a half. We have watched. We, I've done more funerals in the last 18 months than I've done in the last five years combined. Now, none of them have been COVID funerals, but we've lost some dear saints in our church, some some pillars of our congregation, folks that I'm going, man, I don't know what we're going to do without so-and-so. Now, God will will provide, but it's left us with a struggle. And it's left us in many ways faint-hearted. And I don't know what your struggle is today. Perhaps you come in and you say, that's what I am. That's where I'm at today. I'm that faint-hearted person that's just weak and weary with the current struggle. And so the scriptures here today are saying to us as the church, our goal, our role in this is to woo the weary back to the side of our Savior, to encourage them. And that sounds easier than it actually is because a lot of times when you find yourself in that place of faint-heartedness, when you find yourself in that place where you're weak and weary from the struggle, you don't want to hear the words of encouragement, but you need to. And so we encourage one another. How do we do so? I think Hebrews 12 gives us the right instruction. Hebrews 12 says, Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How do we run? Looking to Jesus The founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. There's that word. So that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted, or perhaps we could say for the sake of argument this morning, so that you may not stay weary or faint-hearted, remind yourself of the gospel. And church, be reminding one another. Remind yourselves that your Savior died for you, that he took the fullness of your sin upon himself so that your debt has been fully paid remind yourself that that same Savior who died on the cross for you rose from the dead three days later and that he has given us a mission in this world, which is not to be depressed and downtrodden until he comes back, but as we're going to see in a moment, to actually live with joy in the midst of difficulty. So we remind one another of the gospel. Thirdly, this morning, as we're waiting for our King to come, we need to rejoice in our praying. We need to rejoice in our praying. And so these, again, three rapid-fire commands. Verse 16, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Have you ever asked the question, what's God's will for my life? Here's an answer right here. This is not the only answer, but it's a great answer, and it would change so many of our lives if we would live within these three simple commands. If our lives were characterized by rejoicing and praying and thanksgiving, how much would that change not only our demeanor, but our effectiveness in this current culture? We rejoice in our praying, first of all, by choosing joy over jealousy. We rejoice. That's that's the characteristic of the Christian life, that we are to be a people who rejoice. And oftentimes we look around and we say, well, I don't feel like we have much to rejoice over in these days. Our church attendance is going down. The offerings are less. There's so much COVID still uh, going on. And we look around and every headline seems to be negative. And we say, what do we have to rejoice in? And the answer is this gospel, this gospel that supersedes all of the junk. We choose joy over jealousy. We can only make that choice because of what he has done for us. And so Hebrews thirteen five encourages us to keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Paul said, I found the secret of being content. What's the secret of contentment? Understanding that your greatest joy is found in the gospel of God. Understanding that your circumstances do not have to determine your demeanor. Understanding that your outlook can be determined by what God has done and not what man is doing. This changes everything. We not only rejoice in our praying by choosing joy over jealousy, but we also choose perseverance over petering out. And man, we are in such need of perseverance in this day. I think it's one of the attributes that we that we most need in this moment is that God-given gift of, of perseverance. And so he says to them, pray without ceasing. Now that's been wrongly interpreted over the years. This is not spending 24-7 on your knees. This is not mumbling prayers under your breath continually. This is not that. It's a persevering in prayer. It's a praying without stopping. It's as one author said, it's it's keeping the line open. Now some of our young people won't understand this, but there used to be a phone that had a receiver. It's called a home phone. I know most of us don't have those anymore. We just have cell phones. But back in the day, keeping the line open meant leaving the phone off the hook. And so here we are in this place, we're understanding, we want to keep the line open between us and God. We want to be continually in a place where prayer is as, is as natural as our next breath. Because spiritually speaking, it must be. And persevering in that prayer, as Ephesians 6 says, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end, keep alert with all. Here's the same word, perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Keep on praying. Don't give up. And finally, we rejoice in our praying by choosing gratitude over grumbling. I've said for many years now, one of the greatest thermometers of the Christian life is thanksgiving. How do you know if you're doing well spiritually? One of the ways that you can see it is if you are growing more and more grateful and less and less of a grumbler. It's just one of the marks. And Paul extends this, this value of thanksgiving again and again in his letters. Can Colossians 4, two continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with what? With thanksgiving. Are our prayers, are our lives characterized by thanksgiving? If so, we're on the right path. Finally, this morning, while we're in the waiting room, as we've spoken about today, we we, only want to be mindful of several things, of respecting our pastors, of rehearsing our patience, of rejoicing in our praying, but we also want to continually be reviewing our preaching. By reviewing our preaching. And so Paul ends this section... again several admonitions for us. He begins with these words, do not quench the spirit. Verse 19. Now this Phrase has been radically misunderstood and and misinterpreted in so many ways, and people have tried to apply all kinds of things here. Uh, Some would even say, Well, Pastor, rather than preparing your sermons, you just need to, to get up and give whatever God gives you in the moment, because it's wrongful understanding that God only works in the in the spontaneous, that the Holy Spirit can only operate in the spur of the moment. I want to tell you this morning, if you ever heard me preach a sermon that was unprepared, you would beg me to get back in the study. And I dare say Pastor Jason would say the same thing to you. We need that time in the study because the sermon has to work first upon the preacher before we can ever work on the people. God has to work upon the shepherd so that he can then, through the shepherd, work upon the sheep. And so we see this picture here, uh, this question of what does it then mean not to quench the spirit the the greek word for quench there it it refers to putting out a fire so don't put out the spirit's fire what are we talking about well i think it's fairly simple actually let's just read it in its context before we jump out to some other scripture to try to explain this before we try to to go to other places to try to explain this let's just read it in its context And I would say it's fairly simple. Not quenching the Spirit means doing the very kinds of things that we've been encouraged to do in this passage of Scripture this morning. So how might we quench the Spirit by not respecting our pastors? How might we quench the Spirit by not rehearsing our patience? How might we quench the Spirit by not rejoicing in are praying. Each of these rapid-fire commands are, the, are ways in which we might quench the Spirit, but our obedience to these things will allow the Spirit to flourish among us, will allow, allow the fires of God's Spirit and His power to flourish among us and bring life to His church. And so we want to review our preaching, first of all, by comparing Every word to God's truth by comparing every word that's preached to the truth of God I've encouraged our church for many years now to be like the church at Berea in fact if I could change our church's name from Corinth Baptist to something else I would love to call it Berea Baptist except for Berea is in the other side of the state and that would just confuse people but but I love the Bereans in Acts 17 I love what it says in Acts 17 11, that now these Jews, those of Berea, they were more noble than those in Thessalonica. And by the way, Paul thought really highly of the Thessalonican church. He says these were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness. I love that picture, but that's not all. Examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. I don't know if you remember the old... Show Reading Rainbow. I grew up on Reading Rainbow. LeVar Burton, before he was on Star Trek and all of that kind of stuff, he would always say, Now, don't take my word for it, go and read the book for yourself. And that's what I would say to us, church. Don't take my word for it. Don't take Pastor Jason's word for it. Don't allow your only intake of the Word of God to come from the mouths of some preacher. Now, you need that. Don't misunderstand me. You need that. We need the preaching of God's Word. But if we don't do as the Bereans did and go and examine to see if these things are so, we run the risk of being led astray or at least being spiritually lethargic. So we review our preaching by comparing every word to God's truth. We review our preaching by clinging to the wonderful treasures in faith. And so I encourage you, go on the treasure hunt. Every day as you rise up in the morning, take the time to open the word of God and ask the Lord, what do you have for me today? Now, there will be days in which you will find wonderful and beautiful treasures that will change your life and that you will cling to. And there will be many days, if you're like me, probably more days when you will read the Word of God and you will walk away going, I don't really know what all that was today. But keep searching. You see, the gold miner doesn't go into the cavern expecting to come out with an armload of gold every day. But he keeps going. Why? Because he knows there's treasure there. There's treasure here, church. There's treasure here, as the psalmist said in Psalm 19, one of my favorite psalms. He says, more to be desired are they than gold, the words of God. More to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter than honey, even drippings of the honeycomb. This is the sweet and powerful and precious word of God, and it has been given to us. Let us not despise it, but let us enjoy it. And finally this morning, we review our preaching By cutting out the wicked trash in repentance. So these twin pathways of repentance and faith that God has given us in his gospel. How do we respond to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? How do we respond to our coming king? By our lives being characterized by repentance and faith. By our lives being characterized by a turning from sin and a trusting in our Savior. From the very beginning, Jesus preached in Matthew 4, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And repentance is not a one and done that happens at the beginning of the Christian life. Repentance is a part of the Christian pathway. Confessing our sins, knowing he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Knowing that he will cast our sins as far as the east is from the west. Knowing that ultimately our sin has already been dealt with at the cross. And so we can walk in repentance, in joy. And so I'll leave you with these words from 2 Peter 3. Peter writes, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, here's the main question for the day. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? What sort of people ought we to be The sort of people that respect our pastors. The sort of people that are continually rehearsing our patience with one another. The sort of the people that are rejoicing in our praying and continually reviewing our preaching, seeking not just to be hearers of the word, but to become doers of it to the glory of God. And so I don't know where this hits you today, but I would encourage you as we close out this morning. Perhaps one of these 16 rapid-fire commands has stood out to you today. Perhaps that is the work of the Holy Spirit saying, take notice. There's something for you to walk in here. There's perhaps a matter of obedience here. Perhaps there's some forgiveness needed here. Perhaps there's a mind change needed here. Let us heed the Spirit this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray now that you would lead us in response. May our response be characterized by repentance and faith. Turning from sin and trusting even more in our Savior. Father, I pray for any in this room that have not yet tasted of your goodness. That hearing this message this morning perhaps for the first time, are seeing your grace. God, I pray that you would show them your goodness. That they would turn to you. Turning from their sin and trusting in Christ to do for them what they could never accomplish for themselves. And then you enable us to walk in these pathways of life. Would you do so this morning even as we sing? Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, let's stand and respond to the word of God this morning. I'll be standing here at the front end along with Pastor Jason. If you would like someone to pray with you, just to encourage you in the word, however we might serve you this morning, let's share this final song together today. Thanks for listening to this podcast.